Good morning, Mercy Hill. That's a good, good morning. Thank you. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, If I haven't met you, I'm John Lugo. I've been a member here at Mercy Hill for two, three years at this point. Um, And I have the honor to be up here preaching God's word. So uh, just excited to be here. If you have your Bibles, go and get those things open. We'll jump right into it. If you don't have a Bible, we have some gentlemen walking around that will hand them out to you. We'll be in the book of James today. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take this as our gift to you. If you don't know someone that has a Bible, go ahead and give that to them. Uh, So James will be in chapter 1. This is a continuation from last time, whenever we went through James. Um, If you haven't been in the book of James in a while, you can just flip all the way to the back of your Bible to Revelation. Flip forward a little bit, very slowly, you'll get to James eventually. All right, so chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 27. So 18 is at the very end of the last section. We'll jump into the new section of hearing and doing the word. We'll read it, pray, do some review from last time, and just get into it. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer, Of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. God, we know that there's just so much here. And God, I think even just in your your word alone, we know that it has this, this power to save this power to breathe life into us, to restore broken lives. God, use your words in, in more ways than any of us could ever pretend to describe. So God, I pray this morning, even with just reading James 18 to 27, that this would be enough even for anyone in this room or anyone that would be listening later on. God, this would be grace that they would hear they would see the love buried in these words there's instruction there's wisdom here and we'll we'll definitely see how it is you want to work on our hearts in that way but god there's this text is wrapped in love pray that we would see you as the god of all love the god that desires to be by our side in the midst of a trial in the midst of an affliction that you are not distant you are never distant you were there beside us, and we know that. God, may we desire to sense your presence more and yearn for it all the days of our lives. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. So in these verses, whenever I've, I've read this in the past, um, I kind of mentioned even in my prayer that they're kind of instructional verses. They're wisdom verses. And I think as you read these, that's something we can definitely take away from it. And the key theme that the Lord kind of revealed to me in the last weeks as I was studying this and kind of going through it, meditating over it, is that there's actually this, there is a central theme of love. And if you read these verses before, you may be thinking, well, love, that, that doesn't make any sense. That's kind of a bit of a reach. I don't see love anywhere in here. As a matter of fact, he's talking about anger. He's talking about doing. He's talking about widows and orphans. Things are worthless. Like, where, where's the love in any of this? And what I want to be able to show you this morning is that in the midst of our hearing, in the midst of our doing, in the midst of our serving, those are the things that are buried in love. That we can do these things and do them with this conscious heart where maybe we don't really, we're not really invested in it. Or we're forcing ourselves to move forward. But whenever God is the one that is at hand there, whenever he's the one that's propelling us forward, that's the love that we can have in hearing our brothers and sisters and doing what is that God is commanding us to do is serving those that are sometimes the, for, the forgotten people in our society. So we'll get into all that this morning. Before we do, um, just want to get into a, a few things that we covered last time, just as background. I think it's helpful so that we all know kind of where we left off and it'll add some clarity to today's text as well. So the first thing that we did last time was we actually looked at the background on who exactly James was. And we said that this would help us understand the credibility he brought to the topics of things like obedience and serving, suffering, and and all the other topics that he brings up in this epistle. So we said that James was Jesus' brother. He didn't follow Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, nor was he at Jesus' death whenever whenever he was on the cross. But Jesus still revealed himself to James after the resurrection. And this led to James's conversion from Judaism to Christianity. So this was kind of the enlightenment for James to see the fulfillment of the law whenever he actually saw Jesus. James was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, even with this high of a title of being the leader of a church in Jerusalem in that day, we see James start off in verse one, taking the lowest title the lowest form of a servant he says a servant of god and the lord jesus christ so as we consider christian obedience and christian service we see james submitting to jesus as lord he puts out of focus any blood relationship that he has with jesus at the time and instead says no i'm I'm on this journey like the rest of you i'm trying to figure all this out i'm fallen i'm sinful and i need a savior the same way that you do So these are all good things to remember as we read through this book. The final piece of background on James had to do with his nickname. So he was called James the Just. I think many of us know that name. Uh, He was called James the Just because of its integrity. He had extreme virtue. Um, The guy was honest. And he was really faithful in following religious customs. And not least of which was actually he prayed. He prayed, but he prayed the way that... Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 5, which is to pray without ceasing. James fell to his knees so often in, his prayer, in prayer that his knees were calloused from prayer. So it gave him like this lesser known nickname of Old Camel Knees, which is kind of a funny name, right? And for those of you that don't know, the knees of a camel are pretty beat up. I don't own a camel. I don't think any of us have any camel stable outside, so we don't know this. But it's safer to say camel's knees are pretty beat up. 
Now, this kind of leads to the story of James's martyrdom, which is proof of both not only of his integrity, James the Just, but his prayer life, Old Camel Knees. So according to an early Christian scribe that recorded James's death, we learned the Pharisees came to James and they wanted him to reject Jesus as the Christ. They said, go to the top of the temple. We want you to say loud and proud, Jesus is not the Christ. So James did it. He went to the top of the temple. But instead of saying that, he professed to everyone there that Jesus is the Christ. He sitteth at the right hand of the great power of God. And naturally, the Pharisees were just irate at this. And so their reaction was to throw James from the top of the temple, this four, five, six-story temple. And the type of fall that probably would have killed the average person, James, survived. And so because they wanted to make sure they finished the job, the Pharisees proceeded to stone him. And as James was breathing his last, he was on his knees doing what? He was praying. He was praying for the people that were stoning him. We've all heard the adage of keep the faith, right? So James is the kind of dude that kept the faith. He, even unto death, even as he was realizing his own death, he was on his knees praying for those who persecuted him. What incredible integrity. What an incredible prayer life. So as we dive into James' letter, we should all be okay with the things that James has to share with us. He's kind of been there in the midst of suffering, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of trials. We should be all right with him kind of challenging us to the point of saying, no, you need to be doing more in your faith. No, you need to be the one that is hearing God first, hearing God's people first. They need you. They need you to hear him, hear them, so you can respond in a way that is holy and godly and loving. So we see James jump right into it. We'll cover all these verses of 2 through 17 very fast, and we'll get into new stuff here in just a minute. Uh, but he jumped right into it in verses 2 through 4. He says that we will suffer and we will face trials, if you see that in verses 2 through 4. And these trials, which God causes and allows, are for our good and for the glory of God. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. And what he's not saying is that suffering or trial will never go away, though, though it may. Suffering and trial may stay for a long duration, even for the duration of our earthly lives. That's not what he's saying with us. What he's saying is that when you pray and turn to God, when you're totally bankrupt, when you realize that you're unable to do anything yourself, that feeling of needing God, let that feeling have its full effect in your heart and your soul. So don't miss this. This is the idea of letting steadfastness have its full effect to realize the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our earthly lives to bring us closer to the divine, to the almighty, to the great I am. So he goes on in verses five through 11, explaining that God counsels us in our affliction. When we were going through this trial, through the suffering, James reminds us that God bids us to come to him. And for what purpose? It's not to simply give us peace. It's not simply to take away the pain. James says it's to ask for wisdom. God wants to give us the wisdom to remove the fog that's clouding our judgments, our thoughts, and sometimes even our prayers. So James says to ask for wisdom in these things, and God will give generously. He will give you that wisdom generously so you know how to pray, so you know how to pursue pursue your brother and sister, so you know how to pursue your spouse or your friend. You know how to reconcile these problems that are before you. Finally, we walk through verses 12 through 18, and this is kind of the last part of the review here, where we said God comforts us in the trial. We said that when suffering happens, temptation occurs by the forces that God allows. 
but these afflictions are not intended to cause us to sin, but rather to grow us closer to God. It's intended to grow our dependence on God through prayer, through waiting, action, solitude, silence, meditation, all all the Christian disciplines that come to mind. God brought on the trials up to us through the power of the Holy Spirit to respond in a holy way, not a sinful way. God sees us through these fiery trials, and and he's not simply waiting for us at the end or at the finish line. He does pick us up whenever we fall. He does give us hope in the hopelessness. Friends, he comforts us in all of our afflictions. He bids you to come to him to find joy, to find wisdom, and to find comfort. And from there, he wants to send you out to be a testimony for his good word, to shine light to others. So when that trials happen, people can say, I saw God work in this person's life. So these are the things we covered last time. I flew through that pretty quick. Um, If you want to read the sermon in more detail, it's on the Mercy Hall website under the resources tab, and you can peruse that at your leisure. But let's go and connect these points to the text this morning um, and get into some new stuff, yeah? So I broke down our text into three main headings. So first, love by hearing. That can be found in verses 19 through 21. Second, love by doing. We'll explore that in verses 22 and 25. And finally, love by serving. You can read those in verses 26 and 27. And it will come back to verse 18 at the very end as we conclude. Uh, loved by Christ. That's kind of where we'll close out today. All right, so verses 19 through 21. Um, I'm not going to read this section, but just know this whole section is kind of a continuation from the previous teaching on trials and afflictions. I'll kind of pinpoint a few verses as we go through here. But specifically, James is telling us that we should aim to restrain the wrong passions that are stirred up in us whenever the trial comes. We should aim to restrain those, those passions, those feelings that, is, that are stirred up in us whenever the trial comes. That's kind of a weird thing to say, right? The wrong passion he is focusing on here specifically is anger. We have to restrain our anger, but we can only have this kind of restraint with the power of God's word. And we'll talk more about that later, about how God's word does play into our anger and how I can address it and pinpoint it there, at the, there in the moment. But think about it. When our spirit becomes angry and is provoked by trials and afflictions, we generally say and do some pretty profane things, and they're generally out of character for us. Think that one through. So think through the last time something didn't go as you planned or expected, like like really didn't go as you planned or you're expected. Uh, Not just running late for work or overspending a few bucks at the grocery store. Think about something really significant. Like having to wake up the 10th time in the middle of the night to tend to your needy child when all you want is just a few hours. Just a few hours of sleep is all that I'm asking for, really. Um, And I know only a few of us here can relate to that. So how about this one? How about something a little more substantial? How about a deeply rooted lie that we believe about our spouse or a really good friend? Where we believe that this is something that this person always says. This person always does this, and we're just waiting for them. We're waiting for it. And as soon as we catch the first whiff of that ugliness rearing its hideous head, we respond. We know exactly what to say to cut them off at the knees, and we we say it intentionally to hurt that person. It's, It's a very hideous thing and sinister thing to do, and it's really regretful. There's any number of things that can cause us to give in to that temptation, 
when we're faced with these trials. And whatever those temptations are, we normally end up looking back at ourselves. If we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we can look back at ourselves, confess, repent for the ugliness, and maybe even our spouse, our friend, uh, that person that we, that we offended, would come up to us in grace and said, wow, you were kind of in, you were in rare form that day. Um, or, you know, I've never seen you like that. Do you want to tell me more? Uh, and, and that'll give us the opportunity to share our heart, right? And maybe God will work in that moment if we bid him to come and to help us. Now, there's grace for this. That's for sure. God is long suffering with his children. We know this. But friends, all this, is just, but all this that we just said, the trial, the giving in to sinful temptation, the confession, the repentance, this is one reason why James 1.19 is here in our Bibles. It's here to teach us that the renewing grace of God and the word of the gospel can help us to subdue these wrong feelings. Now, you may be asking if God can work with that raw, that raw, those raw feelings that we have. And the answer is yes. Clearly, the answer is yes. We see it all throughout Scripture, right? We, we see men and women saying and doing the wrong thing, and God is there. He's right there to comfort, to embrace, to love, and most importantly, to forgive. But can those raw feelings lead us astray from the truth of the word? And the answer to that is yes as well. So if we err in the side of saying, oh, there's grace for that, there's grace for that, there is. But we can't just rely on grace our whole lives. We have to turn to God we have to ask him for forgiveness and ask him to, to intervene in those moments for us. So we do have to be cautious. The temptation spoken in the beginning of the chapter with anger. James is telling us to hear God instead of trying to silence him under those temptations. So you may reach James 1.19, let every brother be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and think it's only the horizontal. But actually God is meaning that to be the vertical first because every relationship we have horizontally with people in front of us is a manifestation of our vertical relationship with god so we should be quick to hear god open our ears and our hearts to hear what he will say to us be slow to speak stop trying to have the first and the last word with god sometimes it means just being still in our prayer time and being slow to anger, don't immediately believe that God is out to get you and pipe off the first sarcastic remark to him. Believe the best in our God, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God of salvation, even as the trial is just ripping you apart. Even as you're saying, like, I don't want to be the first one to apologize to my friend or to my spouse. I don't want to be the one to have to deal with this, this injury or this divorce. I don't want to have to deal with these things. God can meet you in those moments. So we mentioned that the relationship with God is the indicator of how we treat relationships with the saints of God. And if there were ever people that we should emphasize James 1.19 with, it's with the people here in this room, if you think about it, right? Not to ignore one another, not to speak over one another, not to grow angry with one another. The world offers more than enough of all of those things. We should take the full counsel of God when engaging with our brothers and sisters at Mercy Hill or just any other Christian brother and sister as well. So think of the love that it conveys to the other person we are talking to when we are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We can, we can showcase so much love by simply hearing because it's really the one thing that you hear over and over 
from all these soft skill training. Like you need to listen better. You need to hear better. Like, yes, communication is definitely there, but it's like, did you hear what that person really said? And most often the responses that we have is because we, whenever the response is wrong, it's because we heard wrong from that person. We didn't actually listen to what it is that they were saying. James 119 has a ton of wisdom rooted in this. And, and it's, it's certainly true because it draws on many proverbs that James likely knew well. We're going to pop a few of these on the screen for you so you can read them. Uh, but here's a few. So, so Proverbs 1019, and it's a little bit of an eye chart. If you can't read that, um, you may need glasses the same way that I do. <laughs> Proverbs 1019, when words are many, transgression is lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a hard word stirs up anger. And Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. So we just see over and over again in these wisdom books of the Old Testament and across the rest of the Bible that providing guidance on the topic of speaking and hearing is paramount. And all the more should we heed this advice when engaging with the people of God. So, so we should ask the question, well, why? Well, why spend so much time on the topic of hearing, speaking, and anger? Well, it has to do with verse 19b. So look with me there. Verse 19b says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's as if James is saying, look, your deep-seated passion, your anger, the way you were lashing out at this person is not needed on God's behalf. God's cause is far better served with mildness and meekness and kindness instead of wrath and fury. Friends, there's no good, absolutely no good that comes from human wrath, especially in terms of pursuing God or showcasing God's character. So, 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 so think about this part. When has our, our self-reliant anger ever changed the human heart? If it's God who saves, if it's God who transforms the heart, God who awakens, God who speaks life, then why do we think that, that yelling or, or being rough and tough to some individual is somehow going to change the heart of, of our kids, our spouse, or our friends, or, or even that person that just cut us off on the highway? Somehow honking our horn for an extra 30 seconds, they're going to say, you know what, I did have an absent father thing in my past, and, and you know, my overbearing mother really did cause me to cut that, I should really rethink this, I'm driving down the road. That's not going to happen, you know? Like, as we're, as, what they're going to respond with is showing us that we're number one with the wrong finger. So, so, so we have to think about that. All of our anger is not the way that we're going to change the human heart. We have to pursue God in these things. If our desire is to get to the heart, which it always should be, we should be asking God to help control our anger, not pushing him out of the way in wrath and expecting godly results. We're going to read Ecclesiastes 9.17. You don't have to turn there. We should have it up here for you as well. So let's go and read that. So the words of the wise are heard in quiet. I'm sorry, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So think about this verse in terms of our Savior. Although we can count one, maybe two times that Scripture calls out Jesus was angry through through his earthly ministry, his anger always had the proper motivation. There was no selfishness behind it. It had the proper focus. It targeted true injustice. It had the proper duration. It never turned into bitterness. And it had the proper control. His emotions were always in check. 
Jesus' words were wise, and his ministry wasn't known for being loud, flamboyant, or attention-seeking. Now let's flip that. Let's think about our anger. When we boil it down, our anger is quite the opposite. It, it It generally is selfish. It's likely targeting our personal injustice, how you offended me in this moment. It has turned us bitter. We won't even talk to that person anymore now. And our emotions are usually not in check, as can tell by the vein popping out on some of our necks sometimes as we're getting angry. It's just quite the opposite of showcasing love to the person in front of us. But when we circle back to James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We see where that love is rooted. It's rooted in the approach we take when talking with another person. And whether we are waiting for our next opportunity to speak, or you await to speak person, we're waiting to hear everything this person has to say. I'm a wait-to-listen person. I really want to hear the words you have to share with me in this moment. Verse 21, let's go ahead and look at that. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Really, there is love buried in here, I promise. So the word filthiness here is meant to describe those lusts which have the greatest depravity and sexuality. So I kept that vague intentionally. There's no need to get into that. I think we all know what we're talking about there. The words rampant wickedness may be understood as the overflowings of malice or any other spiritual wickedness. We've all read about evil, whether we read about the evil that God describes in our Bibles, uh, our history books, fiction movies, Um, Even the news, these horrific things about genocide and and human trafficking, or even our personal experiences. We're told to put away this filthiness and this rampant wickedness. We're told to put away this, if we're participating in those things, to put those away. Those should not be a part of our Christian life. Now, you're probably thinking like, okay, so, so put away. That seems like a pretty mild way to approach rampant wickedness and filthiness when it's described that way. Like, put away the dishes, put away the laundry, and put away rampant wickedness and filthiness. Um, it, there's a little bit more to that. Uh, the term here is actually talking about stripping off of dirty clothes because you want nothing to do with the dirt ever again. Did you catch that? You're taking it off because you never want anything to do with that filthiness, that rampant wickedness ever again. It's saying to cast these behaviors aside, it's not enough to simply put them under control. Say, like, you know what? I I think I got this. I can probably just suppress it down for a little bit. Um, They must be cast from us. And not just the outward sins, the ones that people can see, maybe the way that we do talk to others or, or maybe like the way we do drive down the road and cutting people off. But it's also the inward sins. It's the ones that people see a lot less often. Our thoughts, our affections. We should be asking those people in our home groups to help us with mortifying those sins. Because we need the help of the saints. We cannot do this on our own. If we could, God would not have the community of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He would not have created the community of Adam and Eve. He wouldn't stress community over and over throughout his word. Friends, we need the community of the saints because we can see what's going on, but there's so much that is unseen in our minds and in our hearts. And it's only whenever we confess it that then God can work in that moment. Because then it's not just you confessing and repenting that. It's all of our brothers and all our sisters coming in and saying, no, we are going to kill this thing. It is not going to live past this moment. It doesn't mean that it will get resolved right there and then, but it's a start to a road. And we can see that and we can, we can praise God um, 
as we see those things come to fruition. There's a lot more that I could say about these verses, but I, I want to focus in on the last part of verse 21 because it's going to shape really our last two points. So if you look at that last part of verse 21, it says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James wants to tie verses 16 to 18 to verse 21 here. So 16 to 18 says, God gives every good and perfect gift. He is unchanging. Uh, the gift that he gives is the word of truth, which is described as good and perfect. And he does this so we can be a first fruits of his creatures. He designed this word for us. Man, woman, child, not other parts of his creation. It's for us. And God delights in his people who we are and what we are. So now when we consider that in light of verse 21, we see that verse 21 says that this word didn't come and go. It was implanted in us. It took root. It is in us. It's part of us. We are born again by the word. And this is the power of the word that I said that we would get to. The word stays. Verse 21 says that this implanted word is able to save your souls. The emphasis here is on the power and the importance of the word of God. It is treated the very same way the Bible treats the spirit of God himself. The word is treated the same way as the spirit of God himself. We were dead. We had no place for God to, uh, to work in us. We, we didn't desire God. We didn't love him. Uh, before we're born again, our hearts are full of other things that push out the word of God. It's like those people who spoil their appetites before a big meal. And whenever it comes, they can't do anything but just reject it. As a matter of fact, they're repulsed with additional food because they've eaten so much beforehand. So it has no place for them. The, similar to that, unregenerate people feel the real, this is how they feel about the real meaning of God's word. They don't feel the need for it. They're repulsed by it. They're filled with other things. And they reject the word of God. But we, we are born again by the spirit. If we call Jesus Lord. And we are born again by the word of God. The spirit dwells in us and the word is implanted in us. This, this indwelling spirit is God's way to keep us and bring us to heaven. The implanted word is God's way of preserving and saving our souls. Friends, don't misunderstand the importance and the power of the word of God. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The, the Apostle Paul talks about this implanted word. We should have this up here too. So when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So the word of God did not come and go. It did not leave these believers. It is at work in you. So the God of word is implanted in us is at work in us and james 121 says that it saves us you see that connection the kind of domino effect as we look at those three parts it's implanted it's at work in us and it saves us we cannot easily overstate how profoundly powerful and important the word of god is i i would be as bold as to say that nothing apart from god himself is more important and powerful than his word so if you think about the power that we read about of God, the things that he's done, the way he speaks life into, into nothingness, his word has the same power. So all the more should we be cherishing his word all the days of our lives. So if this wasn't amazing enough, there's more. So verse 21, right in the middle, it says, receive with meekness the implanted words as to receive it. So the word is already in you. 
That's the beauty of this. You should receive it. It's rooted and planted in you. It brings you life. It's there sustaining that life by faith in Christ. It's at work in us, as Paul says. And the work it does in us makes us want to receive it. And James ends, verse 21, says, it's able to save your souls. Now, just a word about meekness here, and we'll move on to point number two. So in this context of hearing the word of God, meekness means something like teachability or readiness to submit to God's word. So when we open our Bibles and are going to receive the word with meekness, which should say to God, Lord, I, I trust you. I submit to you. I, I need your help with discerning your word. Incline my heart to love your word. Open my eyes to the greatness of what is really there. Just, Lord, satisfy my soul with what it is you have to share with me, even if it is a hard word. So every day with meekness, receive the word of God. That is every day be in the Bible. Breathe the Bible. Don't hold your breath until Sunday when someone is up here preaching the word or just sharing the word with you. Read your Bibles every single day. It is as powerful as God himself. All right. That's point number one. So point number two. So this is pretty typical. Um, Point number one is always the longest. So if you're looking at your watches, don't worry. You'll be home before sundown. (laughs) We're going to get through point number two much faster. Uh, Three will be a little bit long, and then we'll wrap up from there. All right, let's go ahead and look at verse 22. We'll read this together, actually. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he is blessed in his doing. So if any, of us, if any of us looked in a mirror and saw this like burly piece of broccoli between our teeth, like the kind that we all have nightmares about going to a job interview, that one that just like sits there right in the middle, you would probably pick it out, wouldn't you? Like you wouldn't just leave it there. And I don't know, maybe you're more comfortable in your own skin than me, but I would pick that thing out because I wouldn't want to be known as the broccoli person between my teeth. So, so you look in the mirror, you see that, you see this spot, this blemish, and you fix it, right? Much in the same way, the word of the God is a mirror for us. It shows us our sin. It shows us the blemishes in our own heart. It does it in love. It does it in grace. It reflects back to us everything that maybe we don't want to see, but that we need to see. And God is very specific. He's very timely with what it is he wants to share with us. You can read the same verse, the same piece of scripture now and in 10 years from now, and it could mean something radically different for you because of the season of life that you're in or because of the struggles that that you're going through. Friends, we could be the most attentive listeners of the word of God, but it will do us no good unless we are also doers. And that's what James is saying here. James insists that we practice what we hear. There must be an inward practice by meditation, reading the word, but there must be an outward practice in true obedience. The inward practice of reading our word, but the outward practice of true obedience. So I'm going to keep this really short for us. Um, and keep it very practical as well, okay? Here's the one practical thing, because we're going to loop back around to this at the very end and add some, some more substance to it. But here's the practical thing that you can walk away with today. 
do one thing, just one thing, that's it. Every time you read your Bible, every time you hear a sermon, every time you are under the authority of the word or teaching or anything, one thing. Because many times these sermons, many times the word can be a little bit overwhelmed. Like, oh, I need to go and do these five, seven, 12 things. I'll kind of be on the right path and I won't stumble. No, pick one thing. Pray to God that he would work in that. Pray to God this would be something that would change your life and that would, be, that would put you back, get you out of the ditch and get you back onto the road to pursuing the Lord faithfully. Just one thing. So I can share with you that in my own personal life, um, because it sounds legalistic, right? I mean, picking one thing and just running with it. And then maybe I'm not even pursuing the Lord in it, but I'm going to pick that one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to white knuckle this thing and get it done. So, so I've been on the other end of the spectrum where I've sat in many, many sermons. I've, I've read the word enough. Um, I say enough. That sounds terrible. Why would I say that? I've read the word quite a bit. That still sounds really cocky. I don't know how you say this. I've read the word. Okay, we'll say that. Um, so I've, I've read the word. I've, I've listened to sermons, and, and I've done nothing at times. I said, you know what? I, I feel convicted. Oh, man, I'm going to pray about this. Um, wow, I should really reach out to that person. Oh, I feel really terrible that I did that thing. And nothing comes from it. I'm still in the exact same spot. I could have done one thing from that with the power of the Spirit, asking God to help me to actually go forward and have the courage to do something, but doing nothing. God will bless our doing. He will. If we pursue him, we want to be on the end of the pendulum of the doing, even if it means like hitting a wall over and over and over. Because simply filling our, filling our heads with theology and information, that, that's not sufficient. It's not enough. It's not what God calls us to do. He's calling us to put his word into action, to showcase it to those people around us. You, you may remember whenever uh, Chris was actually up here preaching a few weeks back, and he was kind of talking about all the different ministries that he was a part of. Um, and in the midst of that, he talked about how he kind of hit a wall at some times, Right. And he also talked about how some ministries showed a lot of fruit and others didn't. And he talked about even today, like how he's in a ministry that he wouldn't have ever expected to be in. Like, it's really cool to hear all that, right? And, and the thing that I took away from that, like the idea of doing one thing, is don't feel like God is blocking you from doing just because you're not seeing the fruit immediately. There's something there where, like, you need to continue to pursue where it is God would have you. Pray for that. Ask for that. And God will put you in a place where you can serve, where you can do and showcase the light that is in you to the world. So church, let's, let's be doers of the word. Yeah? Do one thing. Just one thing. That's my challenge, okay? All right. Point number three. So we said first that we can express love in our hearing. Then we said we can express love in our doing. Finally, we can express love in our serving. So verse 26 if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you may see this word religious uh, and, and be a little bit confused by it. Um, you think maybe those people I class that would say like, well, I class myself, I classify myself as spiritual, not religious. Uh, and you know, believe it or not, I see one of those people, uh, very arrogant, and thinking like, well, you know, I have this pretty good understanding as a new believer um, of what it means to be a Christian. And you're you're religious. You'll get to where I'm at one day, maybe. 
maybe. Um, and I know, like, that's incredibly immature. And as I reflected back, even as I wrote this story and thought about it, um, you know, the Holy Spirit worked in that. He used that to showcase, like, no, everyone's on a different part of the journey. Everyone needs to hear the truth of the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the saving grace of Christ. So don't get me wrong. I have a long road left, and, and the least that I can do is, is think about like how I've moved past this hard line of being religious and spiritual. Um, but specifically in this context, what James is talking about when he, sees, when he says religious, he actually means faith in Jesus. So I was going to read this in context. If anyone thinks he has, if anyone thinks he has faith in Jesus and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So James says that people who think they have faith in Jesus, but, but use their tongues the way the world does, that religion, that faith is worthless. And his point is this, if you have faith, but don't bridle your tongue, or said another way, if you don't control your unloving, lying, gossiping, cursing, angry, cursing, yes, angry tongue, uh, then your faith is worthless. That sounds pretty harsh, right? I mean, like, I'm no saint. Um, whenever I bang my finger with a hammer, because I'm not the handiest person, I, 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 I say a word that I shouldn't say. Um, but whether our faith, our religion is real is shown by the change it brings about in our hearts and our lives, in particular our speech. So is that banging your finger with a hammer truly who you are? Or is it just like, oh, no, I banged my finger with a hammer. It really hurt. What word can I reach for? Oh, that one looks good. Still not right to say. Um, and then you still confess and repent for that because a four-year-old just heard it, and now she's saying it too. So, so there's a text that may help to add some additional clarity to the extreme statement of being worthless. Let's go ahead and look at that. It's Matthew 7, okay, verses 17 to 20. We should have it up here too. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, Jesus is specifically talking about false prophets here, and he's telling us to beware or remain vigilant and on guard. So, so we should use the discerning spirit as we engage with people around us, especially their speech could have a tendency to lead us astray off the path into the ditch. Similar to what James is saying, that we will be able to tell more about a person's faith by their speech, not the one-time thing of banging your finger with a hammer, but the continued speech of what's coming out of their mouth. Jesus is also saying here that we'll be able to tell more about a person's faith by the fruit they bear or they don't bear. This, this doesn't mean that we are to judge as people around us. I don't want you to mishear me at all. We're not here to judge as to whether someone's of faith or not. They're a Christian or not. That, that's not it. But rather, as James talks about in verses 5 through 8 of this chapter, we should pray. And that seems like kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, but this person is saying the same. You want me to go pray about it? Like, I should call them on that and make sure that they know they're saying the wrong thing and this anger is rising. It's not, wow, I see what's happening now. Like, it's everything that James is saying. It's, it's, everything is coming to fruition. We should pray for wisdom of how to care for this brother or sister. We should, we should move towards them or sometimes even away from them in wisdom. Friends, we should also most especially ask the Lord how we should pray for our own heart. So our faith and our speech remains undefiled. So our faith in Jesus is never perceived as worthless by us or anyone around us. That's the prayer that we should have as we pray for wisdom, how to approach our brother and sister 
And I ask, am I there as well? If so, God, work on my heart. And God, help me to share a good word with my brother and my sister. Jesus also says this in, about our speech in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person, out of the good, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus is saying that it's almost as if the overflow of our truest, our rawest emotions, are those that are regurgitated up from our heart, up into our throat, and through the sinful vessel that we call the tongue. We hope to control it, but many times the words we are saying are simply a reflection of the posture of our heart. So the things coming out of here are the things that are buried in here. So I've heard it said that the unspoken prayer request, it's interesting whenever you ask people, like, what are your prayer requests? And, and they'll say any multitude of things. I'm sure there's a lot of genuineness and authenticity and realism to that. But those unspoken prayer requests typically are those that are disguised in the normal day-to-day conversations. It's just whenever you're talking to someone about the struggles they're having throughout the course of the week, the struggles that they're having with family or coworkers, whether their job's even going to be there the next day, how are they going to provide for their family, any number of things. But yeah, just go ahead and pray, have a good week. You know, uh, and, and you, can, you can see like, no, there, there's more to it. There's something there where we really have to get into that. And I really want to make sure I pray for you, brother, pray for you, sister. And does that person even find joy or pain in their experiences that they're sharing? Is that person open to sharing? Does it seem like there's even a wall up protecting the sacred corners of their heart? Does that person see God in the day-to-day or only in the magnificent or maybe even not at all? So these are the things we can listen for and, as James says, be quick to hear and pray for as we engage in life with one another. So James goes on in verse 27 They say that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So so there's two kinds of effects here that pure religion or faith in Christ has. One is the practical compassion towards orphans and widows. We see that in verse 27. But we also see keeping oneself unstained from the world, its personal purity of life. So two things, orphans and widows, and the personal purity of life. So this is important to see because so many Christians will lean one way or the other. Some will go all in by saying what matters is personal purity, sexual purity, financial integrity, a clean thought life, and so on. But they're weak in other practical deeds of compassion for the poor and the helpless. But some go all in on the other end. And they say what matters is social justice and compassion and helping people. And, and what you do with your mind and your body, that's, that's your own thing. And God will work on that throughout, throughout time. But what James is saying in verse 27 is that it's not an either or, but a both and. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Public compassion and private purity. So we don't have time to get into the purity piece today, but don't you worry. James does cover this again in a later chapter, so we will come back to it. Lucky us, right? Uh, So instead, we're going to focus on the orphans and widows today. So let's break down the social justice side. So why call out orphans and widows? That seems like an odd group to single out. As we chip away at at these two groups, we notice that God wants us to be concerned about orphans because they're helpless. 
right? They're, they're without a mother and father. They're young. They've never been out on their own. They've never, they've ever been out of a checking account probably, you know, or whatever the, the big milestones are now for teenagers. And we should feel compassion for the helpless who depend utterly on others for life. We should feel compassion for those people, reach out to them and be a part of their lives. So, so picture with me um, a three-year-old riding in the car seat in the back seat of a car. Um, as we're driving, there's a bad, bad accident that happens. Mom and dad's in the front, um, and they die in the accident. But the three-year-old has like, some injuries. It's going to be okay. Um, doesn't have any family members, no grandparents, aunts, uncles, no one. This three-year-old's now an orphan, no one to care for, no one to raise their hand and say, I'll take that child. And this is such a heartbreaking situation. But God says to the church, step in there and take care of that child. And there's so many of these orphans that are out there that need that sort of care. Helpless children are a great concern to Christ. And he says that our religion, our faith in him, will express his concern with radical risk-taking acts of compassion. There's a lot more that can be said there. We're running out of time, so I'll just, if you want to read the rest of this, it's going to be online. Um, next, widows. The pain of widowhood is great, so the loss of a husband or wife in death uh, is heartbreaking beyond words. But the loss of a spouse through abandonment is in some ways worse. The amputations caused by death can usually heal over time. It's not that it doesn't hurt or anything like that, but, but they heal with time. The amputations caused by abandonment sometimes will stay infected, and they just don't heal the same. So God wants to grant us the ability to speak both languages of compassion, the language of the orphan and the language of the widow, the language of the helpless child and the language of the desperate man or woman. Whatever we do, let us not be silent in those moments. Let us not, let us not, not be doers of the word in that instance. For if we are, our religion is empty and our, and our faith is dead. So let's go ahead and bring all this, all these truths, all this wisdom, everything we talked about um, to the throne of grace, kind of bundle it all together, and we'll start to land the plane at this point. So how does all this measure up to what our Savior has done? You're probably asking that question. You probably haven't heard too much of Jesus and kind of the life that he lived in the midst of this. Well, it's saved here for the end. So, so for starters, over and over again, we see Jesus being the one who is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. One example is in John 4, when he was not in a rush to initiate dialogue with the woman at the well, knowing it would take time for her to share her heart. He sat there and listened and was patient. And the same way he's not in a rush with us, the author of Hebrews exhorts us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The Lord actively enters into our personal situation and understands our unique frame of reference. There's no distractions when we come to him. He is totally immersed in everything that we are saying. Jesus is the one who in love fully knows us and yet fully loves us. And there's not many people that we can say that about in our lifetime to fully know us, the darkest corners of our heart and still fully loves us. So what about in doing? Well, we see Jesus do the greatest thing we could ever ask for. He did the thing that we could never do. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died the death we could never die. And he did this in love. So 1 John 3.16, we should have it up here as well. Some of you may know this. 1 John 3.16 
By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you see that? That Christ did the ultimate thing that the word instructed him to do. He laid down his life for us, for you, for me. And why? So that we can demonstrate the same selfless life for our brothers and sisters. That we would follow kind of the Philippians 2-3 model. Where we would count others more significant than ourselves. That's our call and doing. It's been said before that our time on earth is so short. It's, it's so short, everyone. I, I cannot stress that enough. So what will you do with those extra hours as God preaches to your soul through his word? As God preaches to your soul by his people? What will be the one thing that you do? Because Christ tried to do as much as he could. He fulfilled everything he needed to in his time here on earth. He wasted not a second. Finally serving. We'll just lightly touch on, on the idea of serving widows and orphans. So Mercy Hill, uh, we actually only did lightly touch on that. Um, but maybe we never forget that those of us that call ourselves children of God, maybe we never forget that we were once spiritual widows, that we were once spiritual orphans. We were abandoned. We were left for dead at the bottom of the ocean. No life in us, no breath coming out of us. We were destined for an eternal hell. And God spoke life into us. And that's beautiful in and of itself. But, but let's go ahead and look at Romans 8.12, and, and we'll start to wrap things up right here. Romans 8.12 says it beautifully. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For he did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we be also glorified with him. We are brought into this family of God. We are called sons, daughters of the Most High God. What an honor. It's, it's such a beautiful honor. He served you and me specifically and knew us by name. So, so why have James 1.18 in today's sermon? It's to close with an exhortation. So James 1.18, you look back at your Bibles. How his own will he brought us forth by the word, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of fir- first fruits of his creatures. Church, God brought you forth, called you by name. By his own will, you were handpicked. By his word, the only thing as supreme as God himself, to be first fruits of his creation, to be born again, to experience life everlasting, to be his portion and his treasure, to be part of his family, adopted into the heavenly places, with our names written in the book of life. Christ is the first fruit of Christians. Christians are the first fruits of creatures. So if you're here of Christ today and you're listening here, praise God. I'll exhort you to take these words to heart. Consider how God is calling you to do the things you're reading in his word. Do the things you're hearing preached on Sundays. Being discussed in your home groups and doing things for those people. And if you're not in a home group, just get in one. It's, it's where life happens with the saints. Uh, it's where we go to know other people and also to be known ourselves. But if you're not of Christ, we want to thank you for joining us this morning. We're truly honored that God brought you here. Um, We would say to consider whether you feel like God is calling your name. But uh, regardless, we have so many people that that would be honored to pray with you. 
Um, and we'd be honored just to be able to do that for you and with you. Thank you. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you just for the truth of your word, that it is just that. It's, it's true. It's an errant. Um, it's timeless. God, you speak to us specifically through your word. And God, you speak to us differently through your word. Even as we approach that same text or those same verses, years later, God, you can say something radically different. That you know exactly where our heart is, God, and you can pinpoint that dark corner. You can pinpoint that void that we're trying to fill with something other than you. God, may we, may we pursue you in these moments. May we hear from you and be still. When we speak, when we be slow to speak, and God, with our anger, we pray that you would always, always come into those moments and help us to put that anger at bay, to have it under control. God, we want to showcase the light to the church, yes, but also to the world. May the world see the faith that we have so that more would come to saving grace in you. We love you, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.